Now, um, maybe you're here for the first time this morning. Maybe you've been coming for a couple of weeks. Uh, if you've missed a couple, you can download the podcast online or you can catch up. But this morning, we're actually going to wrap up the whole series with what I believe is the answer. I know I could have given you this on week one, but you wouldn't have come back. Okay, so I waited till the final week because this morning I am going to give you the key that unlocks the door. Okay, this morning when it comes to ideal families, you are going to leave with the recipe for the secret sauce. Because today I am going to tell you exactly what it takes to make an ideal family. You're going to leave going, Dave, now I know. From this point on, it will be so easy in our household because we now understand what it takes to be an ideal family. So, I, I know you're on the edge of your seat now. You're like, what is it? Come on, tell me. what. Well, before I tell you, I've got to just give you a little bit of a background on the Jane family because so, uh, it'll lead into the solution, the key that I'm about to share with you. So, my wife, Casey, and I, and we have three children, Ben, Will, and Emma. We like to vacation, if we can, at least once a year, just get away as a family. And, and when it comes to vacations, you know, we actually have a little bit of a different idea of what a vacation is. Okay, so, uh, for example, with me and Mrs. Jane, um, we, we'll go away somewhere nice. We'll go on a, a vacation to a beach somewhere in a nice hot place. And, and she'll get there, and for seven days, she just wants to lay out and do nothing. And I'm like, do nothing? We've come to this brand new place that we've never been to before. There's, there's so much to see and to do. And I'm like weeks before the vacation, I'm on TripAdvisor. I'm researching this place and I'm finding out about all the local attractions and places you can visit and restaurants you can eat. I, I actually, and this is embarrassing to admit this, but I, I actually live in fear of coming back from a vacation from a place I've never been before and meeting somebody who's been there and then saying to me, did you see that one place or did you go to that one restaurant? And me say, no. No, I didn't know about that and missed out on something. So, so Katie and I will get there and, and half an hour we've been out by the pool and I'm like, okay, we, we need to go do something. She's like, I don't want to do anything. I'm on vacation. I want to just lay out and relax. And I'm like, no, no, no. We've got to see, see things. We, we may never come back here again. We've got to go out and see stuff. So we don't really see eye to eye on what an ideal vacation is. And then when it comes to my kids, we actually just got back from a vacation earlier this year in Florida. We got to go away for a week as a family. We drove down to um, Panama City Beach and we stayed in a condominium right on the ocean. It was beautiful. It was just a great week. And, and we came down the first morning. The sun was shining. It was beautiful. And the, the condo had a pool, a really nice pool out front. And then you could walk down some steps onto the beach. So I'm like, kids, come on, let's hit the beach. They're like, no, we want to go to the pool. The pool? I said, you can go to the pool in Washington. Come on, we're at the ocean. We're going to the beach. We don't want to go to the beach. We don't like the sand. We are going to the beach. Get your stuff. Get down. So we're down on the beach. They're itching. They're scratching. They're in the ocean. It's, it's stinging them and they're crying. I'm like, it doesn't matter. We are on the beach. We are not going to be in the pool. We're going to swim in this ocean. And they loved the vacation, as you can probably imagine. So here's the problem in the Jane family is that, you know, for me, I want to be out seeing things, doing things. Casey wants to relax. I, I think, hey, if we're going to drive like 20 hours to a beach, we are going to spend some time on that beach. We could drive 10 minutes to Washington Pool. We're not spending the week in a swimming pool. We are going to the beach and my kids and I, we're arguing over where. Do you know what I've figured out when it comes to an ideal family? I've figured out what the solution is. If everyone would just see things my way, in my family, we'd have no problems at all. That is the solution. The problem in my family is that they don't see it the way I see it. 
They just need to figure out the, the way I see it is the right way. And if they would all just line up with the right way, everything would be bliss. We'd have happy family times all day long. And, and some of you right now, you're like, Dave, I get it. That's the problem in my family too, because I know I'm right. And, um, and, and for some reason, they don't line up with me. They don't think I am. And Dave, you hit the, you're nudging your wife right now. Some of you go, see, the pastor said it. I knew I was right. And your wife comes to you back and no, he's telling me that I was right. And you know, I'm obviously joking here because actually what I believe is the key to an ideal family is actually the biggest source of tension very often in a family. In, in everywhere, not just a family, in a workplace, in the world that we live in. That idea that my way is the best way. I don't want to back down because I'm right. And we have this, 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 this selfish desire deep down within us. And that's actually what causes most conflict in most families. And I alluded to this on week one of this series. I said, you know what? The very end of the series, I'm going to talk about the very thing that's the center of every problem in every family. It's not the mother-in-law. It's not the brother-in-law. It's not this person or that person. It is us. Me, self. You know, even the Bible, when you look into it, has this uh, great explanation of what this problem looks like. There's a book in the New Testament written by a guy by the name of James. He's writing a letter to a church. He's talking about this very subject. In James chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, he asks these questions. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. And really, that's just the core of it right there. We desire something, and we will fight, and we'll do whatever we can to get our way. You know, the overall theme of this Ideal Family series over the last four weeks, we've been talking a lot about how, um, actually, when it comes to biblical families, there's not a lot of great examples. Most of the families in the Bible are bad examples of families. We see murder, and we see argument, and betrayal, and all sorts of things going on. So um, the idea of a biblical family isn't great. But the Bible does give us some, some, um, some keys and some ideas of what it means to be a great family. And we've talked about that, and Jesus taught a lot about that, and Paul, in his letters, we've looked at some of those things. But really, the overall theme, I think, over the last three or four weeks has been that Jesus didn't lower the bar. He said, hey, there is an ideal family. There is an ideal that as a family you can aim for. And I've been challenging you based on that concept to strive for that ideal, to never lower the bar. Because the truth is, none of us will ever reach that, but we should still use it as our North Star, our guide to say, that's what I aspire to be like. Because too often as families, because it looks so difficult, Instead of trying to, we just lower the bar and we say, you know what? I'm looking around and this is happening there and that's, so I'm just going to lower the bar and, and accept this as normal. But I believe the Bible says, no, don't normalize anything. Strive to be an ideal family. And I think that's the message we've heard over the last three weeks is that, you know, through the Bible, God's challenged us to say, no, set your sights high. As a husband, try to be the best husband you can. As a wife, be the best wife and mum that you can be. Kids, with relationships to your parents, there's, there's an ideal that you can aspire to. But as we've talked about that ideal, another theme has kind of crept in, and we've heard about it over the last three weeks. And it's this whole idea of submission, submitting to one another. This whole idea has come in that really the main source of conflict in most families is selfishness. 
If we really go all the way back to the, the, the lowest point of whatever the conflict might be, it's selfishness. And the problem is, we live in a selfish world. We live in a world that just really develops that selfishness within us. You know, it's, it's there already, and now the world we live in, it enhances it. We have magazines that are called self. There's a magazine just devoted to self. We have iPhones, iPads, iPods, I, 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 I. Do you know what? We even spell we with two eyes now. Everything is all about me, 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 self, self, self. And this, this, this world we live in is, is geared towards me first. And the Bible comes and it turns that message upside down completely. It says, no, others first, you last. Die to self, submit to one another. So knowing that I was going to wrap up the message and challenge this whole idea of, of self being the cause of conflict, this message, this, this passage rather in James, I read it just a few weeks ago and it jumped out of me as I was reading it. Because I knew I was going to be talking about this this morning. You see, I think that we tend to um, think that when it comes to disagreements, especially in the context of family, we look at our family and we think, well, you know what? It's the other person's fault. If they weren't thinking like this or if they wouldn't, if they would just back down in that area, that would solve the problem and, and we, we, we blame. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're more mature and you're, you're a very godly person. You're like, no, 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 Dave, it's not all their fault. I mean, a lot of it's their fault, but it's, I'm, I'm to blame as well. Some of it is my fault, Dave. I get that. You know, and it's, it's 50-50. You know, I mean, no more than 50-50. I mean, they're at least half to blame. But let's look again at what James tells us about ourselves and how we should respond. You see, that verse says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? And I've never read this passage and seen that line before. They come from your desires, the battle within you. You see, we're talking this morning about conflict in the context of a family and those, those struggles and those arguments and those battles that we very often get into as families. But James is saying, hey, listen, before you even get into the family level, did you know there are battles that rage inside of you? There's a battle going on inside of you alone right now. Forget the family. There's a conflict going on just in your life. You see, that battle that's going on in every one of us this morning is that battle within us because there is a part of us that has a desire to do what's right, but it's at war with this other desire that every one of us can find within us. James talks about it in verse 2. He says, you desire, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. And really, as we read those verses, it's very clear what James is talking about. He's talking about selfishness, that selfish desire that's in every one of us. And we know it's in us. We may hide it well or we may mask it, but it is a very core thing that, that started off in childhood. In fact, right now, if I could pull up a live feed from our nursery just across here, there is a, a nursery over there. I bet if we could get a, a picture up on the video screen, we would see toys being snatched. We'd see temper tantrums. We'd probably see some tears. That's just from the workers. If I could actually focus, if I could focus on the kids, we might see it with them as well. But... That, that selfish behavior, we see it. I never had to teach my kids to be selfish. Mine, mine wasn't a word that needed to be taught. They learned that very quickly. It's in every one of us. So that conflict, before it even starts in a family sense, has started within us. It's that conflict between self and the desire to do what is right. 
So what are we going to do about that? Because after all, we know now, maybe having read James, we understand what the problem is, but just knowing is really half the solution. What are we going to actually do physically to change that part of our nature? Well, James actually goes on to tell us. A little bit further on in James chapter 4, verses 6, 7, 8, and then verse 10, he says this. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then. There's that word again. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, I love the practicality of the book of James. If you've never read that book of the Bible before, it's a great book. There's five chapters in James. So you could read one chapter a day this week. And I guarantee you, if you read that book with a pen and paper next to you, every chapter you read, you'll be writing some notes to yourself saying, yep, God's speaking to me through that. That's, that's something I need to... It's a very practical, great book of the Bible to read. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never really got into a, the habit of reading the Bible for yourselves. It's a great place to start. It's a really good practical book to start in. And here in chapter 4, James gives a very practical solution. It's almost like a formula that he gives us. I like formulas. I like to know what the key is. You see, God knows the struggle that we have. He knows that we're fighting this inner conflict, the desire to do what's right, and yet this selfish desire that's deep inside of us. So he says, hey, listen, I'm going to show you how I can help you. I'm going to give you the keys to breaking through that. But you know what? I'm going to need to see you make the first move. God's laying out some ideas here. But he's saying, hey, listen, it's going to start with some action on your part. So can we pull that last slide back up, if we could, with the, uh, the verses there? And as I kind of break it down, you can follow along on the screen here. Because what he says, James, here, he says, when you're humble, he shows you favor. So it's saying, you know, you want to see the favor of God in your life? When you're humble, God will show you favor. Now, if that's not incentive enough, he goes on to say, now, when you're proud, he opposes you. Now, I don't know about you. I, I don't really want to be on the opposite side of God, if I can help it. So I'm going to try and avoid that pride area. When you're humble, he shows you favor. Look at the next one. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Some of us, maybe you've come here for a few weeks now and, and you're enjoying the church service, but you're kind of viewing it at a bit of a distance. This to you is still a, something you come along and experience. And I really believe that God's been speaking to you during some of these songs we sing. You're just sensing something that you've never sensed before. And that's, that's God inviting you towards him. And some of you need to respond just like this verse says and say, I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to come near to God. I'm going to take that step and move more in the direction of God. Because the Bible promises, as you come near to him, he will come near to you. Look at the next one. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves, God will lift you up. We, we fight for that prideful position, that, that position of number one. And God's saying, hey, listen, you want to be first? Then humble yourself and I will lift you up. Because we all have these two conflicting desires within us, the desire to do what is right and the desire to satisfy ourselves. And as we read about it in James, one would think, well, maybe the answer is to destroy one of them. If we could just remove that desire to satisfy ourselves, if we could just get that out of our, our bodies altogether, then the problem will be solved. But the truth is it can't be destroyed. It's, it's part of who we are. It's no different than our brain or our heart. We can't remove that from our body and continue to function. That's, it's just who we are. 
So how do we deal with that conflict that's going on inside of us between the desire to do what's right and the desire to satisfy self? I think the solution is really simple. We've got to find, we've got to find a way in our lives to say, I'm going to feed one and starve the other. I'm going to pour into one of those desires and I'm going to starve that other desire. And you'll see one grow and the other decrease. One will increase, one will decrease. So we've got to look into, um, you know, this, this satisfying self. How can I starve that in my life? How can, I, how can I put others first? And this desire to want to do what's right, how can I enhance that in my life? How can I make that stronger? You know, I can remember... Um, I was young, I was a, a, a child, I think, and I heard this story being told. And it's, it's a story, it's an illustration, but it's stuck with me ever since on this whole idea of um, these two different desires, the desire to serve one another and do what's right, or the desire to satisfy yourself. And the story goes of a, a man who fell asleep one night, and in his dreams, he was taken to heaven and hell. He was taken to hell first, and the guides took him down to hell, and he said, this is hell. And in front of him, this guy could see a huge, long banquet table, as far as you could see either way. And on this table was the most amazing display of food. I mean, just the nicest, the greatest food you could ever imagine. And sat along each side of the table were people with all this food ready to eat. But sat in front of them, instead of regular knives and forks, they had these long knives and forks. They were like five feet long. And this guy in his dream was looking on and, and he could see these people trying to, to get the food and they couldn't get it on the end of their knife and then they couldn't get it into their mouth and, and they were starving, all this food right in front of them and they couldn't get it to their mouths because the knives and forks were too long. And the guy said, that's what hell is like. Then he took him to heaven and he went up to heaven and, and he, as he approached heaven he saw another table identical to the one in hell. This one, just as long, just as much food, just as great. And then to his surprise, people sat there with the same knives and forks. Five feet long, way too long to get the food into your mouth. He said, how can this be heaven? This is the same as hell. And his guide said, no, watch this. And he looked on and he saw as people would, would take food on their knife and their fork and then they would serve one another. And they would give to other people and and serve one another. And the illustration there obviously um, isn't so much on heaven and hell as much as the difference between the attitude of heaven and hell. Heaven, living for that desire, is just having the desire to want to serve others. The other is just that desire to want to satisfy myself. And that's the conflict that James is talking about. He's saying, hey, listen, forget about conflict in your families. There's conflict in you That's why it pours out into your family. And until you've learned to resolve the conflict that exists inside of you, that will always roll out into your family. So we've talked a lot over these last three weeks about starving the selfish desires and feeding the the desires of serving one another and helping one another. Last week, uh, Scott and Amy were talking about um, the couple and their definition of um, marriage, I think, was... uh, you first, no, you first, no, you first. It was two people, a husband and wife, stood outside the door saying, you first, you first. And the week before, I talked about that phrase, can I help you? How can I help you? If we could get that into our vocabulary, it starves that selfish desire and it feeds the desire to want to do what's right and to want to serve one another. 
So that's how I want to finish off this family series, was just saying that really, at the very end, if you want an ideal family, it's got to start in one place, because I've talked to some of you. I'm aware of some of the family conflicts that you're going through, some of the troubles, and, and, very, and a lot of you, there are things you're going through that are completely out of your control. It could be a spouse, or a parent, or someone who is behaving in a way that's, that's just not, and, and you're trying to do what's right, but you can't control their behavior. I get that. But we can all be responsible for our behavior. There's something every one of us can do. And it's recognize that selfishness that's inside of us, recognize that conflict that goes on regularly between the desire to satisfy self and the desire to serve one another, and say, I'm going to choose to fill this, to, 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 to feed this and see it grow, and starve this and see it shrink. Because I want to serve others. And in fact, next Sunday, if you come back next Sunday, we'd love to see you. We're going to talk a lot more about a very practical way that we can serve one another. So you're going to want to come back next Sunday for that. But here's what I want to do just in the closing 10, 10, 15 minutes here this morning. I I was really struggling with this because I felt like that was such an important message. Even as I was reading it, God was challenging me in my own life on on how, you know, sometimes I definitely veer towards uh, that selfish behavior and how I've got to starve that and, and feed the serving behavior instead. So I wanted to talk about that, but at the same time, I really felt as well that there are some things I've learned in my life and some things that I've learned more recently as I've been studying for this whole series on families, just some practical ideas that I think have helped me as a dad and a husband, and I want to share them with you as part of this series. And I really couldn't decide which of the two, so, so you're going to get both this morning. So that's the end of the first part, self, die, servanthood, live, okay? So that's, that's, the, that's the first one uh, coming to an end there. Now, the second part here, I want to give you some practical tips. I've got a few here. I'm going to try and get through them all. Just a few practical tips that I've learned that have helped me. And, and listen, I've got to tell you this because enough of you know me to know this to be true. I am not um, the moral authority on parenting or on being the greatest husband in the world. I am learning just like all of you. I sit in this front row every week listening to me going, yeah, I should do that too. <laughs> I, need to, I need to respond to this message. How can I help you? Um, so I'm learning as I go along. But these are some things that, and, and, and also, as I'm looking out, I see some wonderful families out here. I know some of you really well, parents and husbands and wives, who could teach on some of these things much better than I could. But I'm going to share just a few things that have worked in the Jane household, and maybe with God's help, Help, they'll help you as well. So, so here's the first. There's, there's five of them all together. They're five very practical things I want to share with you this morning to take away with you. Uh, the first one is, uh, we'll put it up on the screen there, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Okay, now some of you are expecting a script reference. That's not in the Bible. Okay, so uh, don't, don't try and look that up. This is the title of a book that was out a while back and it was talking all about the differences between men and women. Now there are loads of differences between men and women. I'll let you guys figure all those out. But um, I was taught one by a, a married man who'd been married for many years, several years ago, and it has stuck with me ever since, and it's helped me such a lot in my marriage. I want to share this with you. Now, I, I'll tell you what I learned. I don't know that I've figured out what to do with what I've learned yet, but at least I understand a little bit more about how Casey and I are different. So I needed a whiteboard out here this morning, but my drawing is very bad. So what I want you to do is imagine I'm drawing because the, imagine, the picture you imagine in your mind will look so much better than the picture I'm actually physically drawing. So this guy, he, he was telling us this story and he had a piece of paper and he drew two large boxes on this piece of paper. He said, Dave, he said, this is a man and this is a woman. It's just two large boxes. Then he proceeded to go over to the man's side and he divided it up into 16 smaller boxes. 
But he didn't do that on the woman's side. He only did that on the man's side. So he said, let me, let me explain something to you, Dave, that will help you as you go on in your married life. He says, this represents the man. So that argument that you two had over breakfast this morning before you left for work, that goes in, in your wife's box anywhere, somewhere here. In yours, it goes in the top left-hand box right there. Then you go to work and the next box gets filled with, you know, maybe a conversation that you're having with your employer or your employees. Then over here, you're thinking about the bills that you're paying. Then you're thinking about the getting home in time to get the kids to practice. And, and he started to fill each one of those boxes. He says, as guys, what you do, and this will help you ladies as well understand the way we think. As guys, you've got different boxes for every one of those. So he said, Dave, that's why when you come home from work at the end of the day, and you're fine now. That box was ages ago. And you walk into the kitchen and, and your wife's there and you're like, hey, how are you? Fine. What? I, no, how can you be angry at me? Nothing's happened yet. And he said, you know, with a lady, with, with your wife, everything stays in the same box. So when she was doing her, um, you know, whatever she was doing during the day, maybe it was housework, maybe she was at work herself, that argument stayed in that box. That argument affected everything that happened during the day. When she picked the kids up from school, she was still, you know, that, that argument was still there. That, that stays with her all day long. And she gets mad because you get home and you've forgotten all about it. She's like, how have you not remembered that argument? How are you so happy when we had that argument this morning? Now, as I said, I haven't figured out what to do with those boxes yet, but it really has helped me understand a little bit more about the way a lady will process things versus the way a guy will process things. And maybe that'll help you here this morning. Maybe you've all figured that out and you're much smarter than I am. But that the, the, we men, we tend to compartmentalize things. And, and, and ladies, you need to understand that about us. And, and men, we need to understand about our wives that they, they don't compartmentalize things. Everything is all mixed in together. And we've got to learn to appreciate that in our wives and, and um, converse with one another and talk with one another, understanding that difference right there. So there you go. That's a, a relationship tip that I've learned that's helped well. And I want to give a parenting tip that I just learned recently. And um, I think it's very appropriate, something I'm dealing with myself. This one, the second one is don't bail, let them fail. Don't bail, let them fail. Now, here's what I mean by this, okay? I'm a parent. I've got three children. They're 12, 10, and 5. And there is very often, on a regular basis, some injustice that's happened in their lives. Will will constantly tell me, he's 10, he's my middle child, the reason he couldn't get his homework done at school. Dad, they were all talking in study room. They were all talking, so I couldn't do my homework. So wait, Will, they were all talking? Yes, that's why, because they were all talking. She didn't explain it properly. She, and, and he'll tell me all the reasons. It's never his fault. You know, there's, there's always another situation that, that led to that. But what I find as a parent is sometimes they'll tell me things, and I think, I need to go and address that with that teacher. He should have got a higher mark there. I need to talk to that coach because he's not getting to play as much as he could. And, and we want to go in and we want to right the wrongs that we see happening in the lives of our kids. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we need to do that. There are situations like bullying or serious issues that as a parent we need to step in and we need to address. But if you're here this morning and you're a parent and you're thinking, you know what? Now that Dave's talking about this, I think about every week I see myself in a situation where I'm, I'm talking to a teacher, I'm talking to a coach, or maybe we're getting too involved on behalf of our kids. And I'll tell you why I think this is important. You see, right now the stakes are low. If my son doesn't get to play as much soccer as, as I feel he should be able to play, the stakes are low. I'd like him to talk to his coach and work that out. I'd like him to learn about um, maybe injustice or the fact that it's not fair that he get, got picked and I didn't. Because one day, 
the stakes will be high. He'll be applying for a job, or he'll be at college, or he'll be in the workplace. And if he's never learned that lesson as a child, I don't want him to have to learn that lesson when the stakes are high and I'm not there. Because what I'm hearing happening is that instead of the kids learning it, parents are just parenting longer. I heard a, a situation recently of an employer, an HR director, who, who said that, you know, I'm dealing with something now that I've never dealt with in my entire career. I'm interviewing young adults, post-college adults, for positions, for jobs, and we're not hiring them. And I'm getting phone calls from their mums saying, why didn't you hire my son? What's wrong? Why? He's like, they're, they're college-age, 23-year-old guys, and I'm getting a call from their mum. And I'm having to explain to mum... We, at some point, have to let our kids figure this stuff out. So, so let's do it when the stakes are low, not when the stakes are high. So I, that's something I learned recently. It's really helped me. I hope it helps some of you as well. Okay, a few more here. Number three, make more deposits than withdrawals. If you're out there with a banking or a mathematical mind, you'll like this, okay? When it comes to your relationship, always be looking to make more deposits than withdrawals. Case and I, we recognize this very early on in our, in our marriage. So we, we have different love languages. If you've ever studied that before, there are different ways that we give and receive love. It may be through giving of gifts. It may be just through physical touch or words of affirmation or acts of service. And, and very often, what's your particular love language will be different than your spouse's. So you may give in the way that you like to receive, but she doesn't want that. I buy Casey gifts. I'm like, hey, she, doesn't, she likes getting gifts. Don't get me wrong. She's never given one back. But, but that's not her primary love language. She likes quality time. She just likes to be alone with me. She likes physical touch. We just give her a hug and say, hey, I love you. And, and here's me giving her a gift thinking, I like getting gifts. This will, you'll be fine. I know we haven't actually spoken like one-on-one really for two weeks, but here's a gift. And I think that's great. I'd like a gift. And then I don't understand why she's not talking to me. So, uh, so what we learned early on in our marriage is that, you know, sometimes, and, and this is my responsibility, I feel, as a husband, is I've got to make time. We'll, we'll go out on a date night, or now that all of our kids are at school, we're able to, you know, meet up for lunch sometimes and just, just have some time together. And it used to be that we would do that if there was stuff needed talking about. Now we do it just to make some deposits, just because just I notice that the longer we go without those times, just one-on-one talking like that, that's when the tension starts to build. And it may not be one or a specific thing, but that tension grows just because there hasn't been a time recently where it's just been the two of us, one-on-one, just making some deposits into the bank. And what I've noticed in my own marriage is when there aren't the deposits there, because the withdrawals will always come. There will always be those times because of what? self in every one of us, those withdrawals will come. But if we put enough deposits into the bank, your relationship can survive some withdrawals. But if they aren't there, those withdrawals can get really tough and can really hurt. Okay, two more, both parenting. Mealtime equals family time. Now, this is a Jane thing, okay? And you can replace the word mealtime with, with whatever you want because this may not work in your own family situation. But we stumbled across this by accident. And, and this is something that Casey and I, and you know, Casey's not here this morning. She's read my notes. She said, yep, they're good. And uh, she's, she's glad she's not here because I wanted her sat here with me so we could talk about this with you together. But she's like, that's why I'm not there this morning. So she wasn't able to be here. So, um, but she would say as well, because she's fantastic. Casey's a great cook. We probably have dinner as a family maybe three or four times a week. We don't eat out that much. So, so what's happened in our lives is those mealtimes have kind of become special times as a family. 
we'll get together around the table, all five of us, and we have some rules about mealtimes. There's, there's no electronics at mealtimes, so no iPods, no iPhones, and, and that's for all of us, which is a tough rule, because I don't think Casey realizes sometimes how important I am. And uh, these texts, Casey, I've got to respond to this text. She's like, Dave, no electronics at the table. But Case, it's... So if you text me around dinner time, that's why I'm ignoring it. But um, it's a rule. No electronics. We don't have a TV in the kitchen. The TV's not on. So it's just us five sitting, eating together. And we'll talk about our day. We'll tell stories. We'll, we'll find out what's been happening at school. And, and, and it's just a really great time. We have a game we play that you have to put your f- finger on your nose. This is one of Casey's family's tradition. The last one to, to see it and put their finger on it. Everyone points and oinks like a pig. It's brilliant. It just wonders for all our self-esteem. And um, you have to do the dishes. That's the oink, 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 oink. And you're on the dishes. So uh, it's just fun memories that are being created around that dinner table. And this can happen in any family. You may be out here this morning and say, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm a single mum here. But it's, it's just that time with your kids, that time with your family. And what we find is, you know, there are stories, there's a story that Will tells. He's told us it a dozen times. It's about a friend of his. It was like two years ago, maybe third grade, who unfortunately in class one day was surprised by a little noise that <laughs> appeared from him. And uh, Will will tell that story. And every time he tells that story, he's got tears rolling down his face because he'll tell about the kid's reaction. And he'll do a, an example of what the kid's face looked like when that noise came out. And the teacher's reaction, oh my. And, uh, and the other kids, and he'll tell this story and he'll laugh. And, and sometimes we'll be like, hey, Will, tell that story again. And we'll just hear that story. I tell stories. I say, guys, you know that family we were praying for? You know when I was talking at church? And I want them to hear stories of what God's doing in our life as a family, what God's doing in Connect Church. I'll say, hey, Will, Ben, I got an email from a lady. You know how we really want to reach people that don't go to church? I got an email from a lady, and I'll read the email to my family. It says here that she didn't go to church. She hasn't been to church since she was 10 years old. And she heard about Connect Church as she came along, and she loves it. And she's been coming ever since. And I'll tell that story, and they'll get excited. And those times around that mealtime are just important times as a family. And I want to challenge you. I know we're all busy, and I know kids are going off to different activities, and I know that maybe husbands don't get back in time from work, so maybe it can't be a mealtime for you. But find a time as a family where you can just build those memories, because that time will go very quickly. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've got teenage kids, you're like, yeah, Dave, but when you get teenagers, you'll realize, do you know what? I'm planning on, even when I have teenagers, maybe it won't be every night, but Casey and I will say, guys... Wednesday night, whatever your plans are, you need to be home for dinner because we are going to have dinner together as a family, all of us, Wednesday night. And we'll get it on the calendar and we'll book it in. That'll be an appointment that you can't break. Because if you're a parent here this morning, I'm realizing now, my, my oldest son's 13, this, this time it goes very, very quickly. So this last one I want to just share with you and then I'll close out. And it's this idea, and again, this is something new I just heard recently. It's the four stages of parenting. And unfortunately, I heard somebody alluding to this. They said it was a book they'd read, and they explained the four stages. They didn't really go into much detail. I want to get this book, because it sounds fantastic. But they talked about the fact that as you raise children, and some of you have raised children, you'll recognize this. Some of you are in the midst of raising children. They said, listen, there are four stages. Those, those first five years, they're the discipline years. That's the timeout. That's the, because they're trying to figure out, your kids, what the boundaries are. They want to know, how far can I go in this direction? How far? And as parents, you're defining those boundaries. You're establishing, hey, in the Jane household, that is unacceptable. That's a boundary that you can't cross. That's, that's a boundary right there. So those first five years, we're establishing some behavior. 
Then come the training years, years 5 to 12. Timeouts don't work quite so well between years 5 to 12, so it's more training, less discipline, more training. Then years 12 through 18, now you're at the coaching years. And then years 18 plus are the friendship years. And here's what I want to say, because as a parent, I'm being challenged on this, but as a parent, I know it to be true because I was a kid myself one year. One year. I was one year. And one day. And once upon a time, I was a kid. What I realized when I was preparing this message is that as a dad, I want all my kids to like me. I want to be their friend. And when I saw this, this challenged me because the friendship years will come. But there are times right now where my kids are going to get angry at me. They're going to get mad at me because of the the discipline or because of the boundaries that I'm setting. Everything in me, I don't want to see them get mad. I don't want to see them get upset. I want them to be my friend. But I'm willing to sacrifice that during these first 18 years to have a friend 18 and above. So there will be times where a door will be slammed shut and I'm sure the day will come where I'll be told, I hate you. And maybe as parents, one of your kids, you've heard that said. But here's what I know to be true because I remember this. So when I was probably about 16 years old, I had a friend called Ray. And I remember, this is so bizarre. I mean, this is years ago, as you can imagine. 16 years old, this kid called Ray. I can remember being in his house. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And he's like, dude, you want to stay over? And I was like, I don't think I can. I'll have to call my mum because she wants me on the, the last bus. The last bus used to go back to my house at 10.30. And she said, yeah. And, and she always wanted me on that bus. I said, I'll call her, but I'm pretty sure she'll tell me I have to come home. He's like, just don't call her. Just stay. I was like, oh, I couldn't do that. She'd be really mad. He's like, you know what? My mum just lets me stay out all the time. I don't even have to call her. I can just go to a friend's house and, you know, I'll just come home the next morning and I'll just tell her. Do you know, at 16, I remember thinking, man, that is so cool. Why can't I have parents like Ray's parents? They don't care where he is. He's allowed to go wherever he wants. And as a 16-year-old, I, I resented my parents because they made me check in. They made me call. They made me tell them. And I'm like, Ray's parents are much cooler. They just let him. He's an adult after all. I mean, he's 16. But what I realize now as an adult, I feel sad for Ray that his parents didn't care where he was. But his par- and I realize now as an adult that that was my parents showing love for me. Those, those rules, those boundaries, I've grown up now and I am friends with my parents. I enjoy seeing them when they come to visit because they established those boundaries and now we're enjoying the friendship years. Man, I, 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 I'd like to extend this series two or three weeks. I love talking about this, partly because it's a stage of life that I'm in. I know many of you are in it, and, and I do think the Bible has a lot to teach on it. But we're going to move on next week, and then we've got another series coming up after that. So, But I want to just finish by praying this morning. And I'm going to close out, and I'm going to pray for every single family here. I've got to be honest with you. When I speak on these messages, I, I'm able to speak and think at the same time. So as I'm sharing with you what is in my notes, in my head, I'm having all these different thoughts. And one of the thoughts that keeps crossing my mind all the time is... But what about this family situation? That's so simple. What about this? And I understand there's so many more complex situations. But I do believe that God says, hey, listen, if you start at the very core things, the things you can control, yourself, your desire to want to be first, if you're willing to humble yourselves, there are things that we can control in our own lives. And I'm going to pray that as we leave today, we'll do everything in our power as a family, as as an individual, and it'll roll out into our families and it'll help us become more of that ideal family. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this series. There's so much more we could have talked about, Lord, and um, 
the truth is, Lord, that at the very beginning we established the fact that none of us are ideal. All of us have fallen short. And thank you so much, God, that in week one we recognize the fact that, Jesus, you never lowered the bar. You set that bar real high. You said, no, there is an ideal. But what you did is you also, your grace went deeper. You said, I know that you're going to fail in many ways. That's why I'm here to help you. That's why my grace is here. So, Lord, I pray for that grace in every family here this morning, that we would uh, tap into it and say, God, I need your help in this area of my life. I recognize this conflict going going on inside of me, and I want self to die, and I want serving others to, to rise up because I want that to be modeled in my family. So, Lord, whether it was one of the practical things that I spoke about at the end or that that self-serving idea at the beginning, Lord, I pray that people will leave this morning and won't just hear what I'm saying, but will say, God, I need your help to apply that this week. I want to make some changes in my life because I know that if I can make some changes in my life, that will affect my family. And that will move us just a little bit closer to being the ideal family that we all aspire to be. Thanks, God, for everyone here, Lord. Bless them, I pray, as they leave. In Jesus' name, amen.